On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got a monster of a show with you with so many great topics and even some potentially controversial stuff to talk about. We're going to start off this episode with the namesake of the show, the Linux kernel with version 5.9 being released. KDE announced the latest version of Plasma with version 5.20, and Pine64 made some really cool announcements of their own that I am so excited to share with you this week. LibreOffice published an open letter to Apache OpenOffice about what they think should happen with the future of OpenOffice. This will be a very interesting topic to talk about. We got a new release of Krita with version 4.4 this week, so that's exciting. Later in the show, we'll talk about some distro releases related to two recovery distros, Redo Rescue 3.0 and RescueZilla 2.0. Then we'll round out the show with some security news related to a critical Bluetooth vulnerability that was nicknamed Bleeding Tooth. All that and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Welcome to episode 121 of This Week in Linux, a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux network. I'm Michael Tunnell, and if you're new to the show, this is a show that will help you keep up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Up first in the show this week is the Linux kernel 5.9 has been released, and there's a lot of stuff in here. It's like a mountain of text, so I'm not going to give everything on there. If you want to learn more about the whole list of things that came out in this release, uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. But let's talk about the highlights. So, for example, a new rescue equal uh, mount option or parameter has been added, and it uh, it's various imp performance improvements has also been available for ButterFS file systems, which is just in time for Fedora 33. And inline encryption support for the extended 4 and the F2FS file systems have been improved, and support for the Unicore architecture has been added. And there's also been a better workload detection and pro uh, protection detection and protection of anonymous memory. And there's also been improvements for uh, things like an asynchronous buffer read operations. It's all kind of underlying important uh, fundamental features that don't really have like, like, you know, big hype things. But it's just like, that's the thing about the Linux kernel is that it's always getting improved at all times. And that's one of the things that makes it as awesome as it is and makes it makes me want to make a show about the ecosystem that is created by around it because anytime there's a new release even if it doesn't seem like it's a big you know huge release kind of thing there's always something fantastic about it in this in the fact that they're just building in more improvements and more features and more just better performance and that sort of stuff so uh, if you want to learn more about this re latest release of 5.9 for the linux kernel i'll have a link to it in the show notes below up next in the show is the latest release of the Plasma desktop environment of version 5.20 from the KDE community team. So KDE Plasma 5.20 has a lot of improvements for a variety of different things. We're going to talk about uh, all sorts of stuff, not everything because there's just a ton of stuff to talk about, but there have been some UX changes, some design changes, some improvements and features. Also some uh, universal features have been switched around that I think are going to be kind of interesting for some people, but I'm in favor of that change. So we'll talk about that later on in the segment. But first of all, let's talk about the Wayland improvements. So KDE mentioned that since 2019, they have set a priority goal to adapt everything to support Wayland. And there having been, there's a lot of updates for that, that work for that support. 
They're adding ability to unplug screens and replug them in much easier. Uh, Clipper support has been added. Screencasting support, which is fantastic and a very big necessity for me, considering I need screencasting to do this show. And also they have improvements for mouse and touchpad support, as well as they've added middle click paste support. Ugh. Middle click paste is awful. Uh, I don't like it. It's a feature that I've never liked in Linux. It's it's always been available for X, and it just gets in the way because if you accidentally, on some browsers, for example, you middle click to open a link in a new tab, which is a fantastic feature, unless you miss the cl- the link and all of a sudden you just pasted something to your browser that is worthless. And it, then it goes to some random search for the, you know, I don't like that. Firefox fixed that a couple years ago, but it always irritated me, and it still irritates me. And also, when you middle-click the desktop, it does this weird sticky note thing that, why do I want that? Could you just not? Could you just make that an application menu? Uh, Which, by the way, built into Plasma, you can just change it to an application menu, and it's fantastic. Just a tip. You should do that. But that's not necessarily Plasma's fault of middle-click. I just don't like middle-click pasting on anything. Because there's so many other values of middle click for, you know, closing tabs, opening tabs, management of windows. So, so many great things. I I don't really like it. Anyway, moving on. That's a weird tangent, I admit. Moving on. So the task manager now is using the icon only task manager by default. So the bottom left, you'll see in the visuals uh, right now, the panel has the icons rather than the full, like the icon and then the full name of the application. And mostly because that takes up a lot of space on the system. And most people identify things, uh, applications through the icon anyway. So there's really no reason to have that full length regardless. So it is much better to have the individual uh, icons only because it condenses the amount of necessary space to display it. And it also makes it look a lot nicer. And you can even do grouping a lot better that way too, because you can just, you know, have everything in under the one icon, click it, and there's all the other options you could have to switch to and that sort of thing. So I think this is a great, this is a great decision for UX. Um, I've been trying to get them to do it for many years and I'm very happy that they have finally done so. So fantastic. Uh, also, there's a new revamped system settings for the users pages, and this is good. I think they need to do a lot more system settings revamping because system settings is kind of confusing for people when they first get into Plasma. It is a very powerful thing, and it is fantastic in the amount of features and customization that system settings has, but it is kind of a bit overwhelming for some people. So it's kind of like this double-edged sword where it's so powerful that it's amazing and also kind of so powerful that it's confusing. So I'm glad to see that they're doing these revamps of the different sections to improve that sort of stuff. So that is fantastic. They're also doing like some redesigns of the on-screen display stuff for brightness and volume control. Also, uh, laptop users can now configure a charge limit that's below 100% to preserve the battery health. So you can say that max it out at 90% or 85% or whatever you want, which is really cool. Also, the ability to adjust the balance of individual elements of your speakers, which is very, very cool. And it's now possible to do corner corner tile window uh, tiling. And it's actually been available in Plasma for a very long time, but they've made it a lot easier. And they've also set up a new shortcut system to be able to switch windows from different locations for the tiling. Because by default, for a long time, the quick tiling system in Plasma was just not active. Like it was there and it's been there for, I don't remember how long, at least 10 years. I don't know, but a long time. 
And now they've actually uh, introduced a new structure of howling to, of ability to uh, use shortcuts to manipulate it and move things around, which has been a much better improvement to it being you know hidden by default. So I'm very very happy to see that, so people can kind of experience the tiling functionality of Plasma in a much easier way than having to go and set things themselves. So fantastic decision on that. Also, there's been improvements to K Runner as well as the brightness and battery applets. There's been a lot of stuff for the uh, new volume on-screen display. It now kind of gives you like a warning if you go over 100% on some applications and that sort of stuff. But the one thing I want to talk to you about that's a universal, uh, kind of a universal standard that has been changed, and it's a good thing in my opinion, is that Alt Keybind to hold and drag windows around has been changed to the super key, which is also known as the Windows key, logo key, meta key, whatever. Uh, so the super key is now being used instead of alt. So you hold down super key, click anywhere on the window, left click anywhere on the window, and it will let you move around that um, that window wherever you want just freely. So you don't have to worry about clicking on the right section like a title bar or whatever. You just hold super, click, move around, and perfectly fine. That is cool because there are some applications that the alt key will actually interfere in functionality of the application, and that creates an issue where it would it would basically fight between whether doing the the function or doing the um, moving around the window. So I'm really happy to see they changed that. It's one of the few things that is a universal that I'm I do agree that it's not that good of a universal. So I'm glad that they changed it. And also for quick tip, if you are interested in trying out Plasma, this is a cool feature. Other DEs have this, not many of them, but a couple other ones. I think XFCE does, and there might be another one. But if you hold the uh, super key, it's actually alt on the other DEs, but super key on the latest 5.20, and then use the right click button and do it on the corners or do it on the edges. You can really easily and quickly resize the window without much issue at all, and I love it. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time, so I I don't have to worry about like where the mouse is on the edge. You just get relatively close to the edge by like an inch or so, then hit the keyboard shortcut, then move it back and forth, and it's just fantastic. So quick tip on that, if you want to check out Plasma 5.20, try that out. And also, let me know what you think in the comments below. If you have tried out 5.20 or you're interested in doing so, I'm very interested to know what you think about uh, this kind of this latest release because I'm excited for the, the future of KDE Plasma because I think they're doing a lot of good stuff in terms of like doing some redesigns. They need to do some little bit of work on the UX still, and I'm trying to get them to do it. But uh, right now, they are making a lot of great changes, so I'm very excited to see. And I'm very interested to see what happens with the Wayland support because Wayland is an is a much longer topic we won't get into right now. So yeah, if you want to learn more about KDE Plasma 5.20, I have links to it, the release notes in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have a great update from Pine64. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, so let's get into it as quick as possible. This is the Hacktober update. And first, we're going to talk about the new Pinecom device that they announced. So this is a cheaper, modem-free, Pine phone-like device like a PDA or a it's kind of like a Palm Pilot meets an iPod sort of thing where it's not really it looks kind of like a phone but isn't a phone because it doesn't have a cellular modem in it it has uh, Wi-Fi structures or uh, stuff like IoT related kind of things and it uh, doesn't have a, a video output for uh, USB mode that kind of thing so it's it's not meant to be the it's not a replacement for the pine phone it's an interesting thing that they're doing and they're wanting people to give uh input input on what they're going to make in this product so 
Lucas from the Pine64 team asking on their forum that says we'd like the community for input on what it should include. So for cameras, GPS, uh, included SPI flash, Pine phone sensors, Wi-Fi module, or upgrade to 5 gigahertz bands. Uh, are they uh, saying we are currently considering following the Pine phone's general design and aesthetic for the Pine Com? But if there is some sort of physical within reason that you think uh, we should ch- change to fit this type of device. Also, they say that we're currently thinking of using a 5-inch LCD panel for the Pinecom. What do you think about this? Is there a reason to go bigger or smaller? We are cur- are completely open to any and all suggestions. And a targeted price for this device would be a range between $100 or $99 to $149. So there's been a lot of people who are interested in this thread. And if you are, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below to find out more about how you can participate in making this happen. Uh, and, you know, well, making the decisions about what this Pinecom can be. Uh, there's also a lot of other stuff they've been doing. And the they've made a new Pinephone case. Now, they have been, they've had a, pan, a Pinephone case for a while to kind of protect the phone. But this is a new case. This is a booklet cover style case that has like a clamshell uh, folding approach. But also on this case is a physical QWERTY keyboard that also has, you know, a, a LED lighting kind of thing. And this is very interesting. So you can have a hardware keyboard on the Pine phone if you choose to do so by purchasing this case, which is really, really, really cool. And it also seems to have a battery backup attached in the clamshell case to provide more battery power if you want to do that, which is very, very cool. Also, it comes with an NFC antenna, and the uh, they should they say that it will also have uh, wireless charging, uh, and also you know in, in NFC. It, it, also, they talked about the Pine Time, which is their watch. So the Pine Time budget smartwatch now shipping with InfiniTime FOSS firmware, Pine Time uh, music control, and Android with a gadget bridge and playing games on the watch is also possible too. Now, this is an enthusiast type of, of smartwatch, so. Uh, you know, it just keep that in mind. Most of their products are enthusiast level stuff. They're not like flagship uh, prices of like $800 or something. You know, they're not doing that kind of thing. So that's why, uh, just to be clarified, the price is very, very good because they're trying to create a uh, like an ecosystem of this sort of stuff to make a Linux powered or an open source powered uh, ecosystem to have these products all work together, which is just amazing. But, you know, it's the first time they've started trying to do this because the Pine Phone is the first edition of the Pine Phone. So it's they've made iterative changes to improve it over the time, uh, but they have made some improvements to the Pine Phone as well for upgrades. So they, the three gigabyte, 32 gigabyte or three gigabyte RAM, 32 gigabyte EMMC storage that was only available for the convergence packages are now available for anyone. And in starting in November, you can buy the three gigabyte mainboard to repair existing devices and even replace the boards of existing phones. So for example, theoretically, because the case of, they haven't said this specifically, but because the case of the Pine phone is so easily customizable and that kind of thing, it is possible that for someone who wants to go through the process to be able to remove the cover and all the pieces to replace the main board of the phone to upgrade the existing phone you have of the Pine phone. Now, if you want to do that, that is an option. Uh, personally, I wouldn't want to go through that process because I would just get a new version of the phone, but that's also because I'm, uh, let's say time efficient or lazy. One of those two, 
Also, a lot of stuff has been added in addition to that. They also have the Pine Cube. So the Pine Cube is a camera, it's like a development board for a camera module. And this is like a $30 thing plus shipping. Uh, it has its own uh, storage structure built into it, but it also has its own uh, ARM processor and a camera sensor with a five megapixel camera. It has audio built in for the microphone and speaker, and it also has uh, a small uh, LCD display as or as an option if you want to get that and a bunch of other stuff. But the cool thing about it is that it's essentially like an enthusiast camera system on a chip board. Anyway, it's it's very cool. It doesn't look like a, a completed product because it is in still in the development board stage. So check that out if you want. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So many many cool things that Pine64 is doing. And the there's one more thing I want to talk about that is just fun because why not? So RISC-V is a architecture for processors that is uh, up and coming. It's, an, it's a fully open source architecture. And I am so happy that you know, when companies uh, uh, talk about like supporting it and trying to push it forward. And Pine has also decided to push it forward in some ways. And the way they decided to do it is just ridiculously awesome and how just fun it is. So have you ever wanted to do soldering? You need a soldering iron. Well, why not get the pine seal, like pencil, pine seal, and it's a RISC-V powered soldering iron. So it's just, it's just awesome. So if you want to get it, it comes, you can, it's just with a a B2 tip for those who know what soldering is. And uh, they also say that it has a 32-bit RISC-V Bumblebee core at 108 megahertz uh, processor. It has um, 128 kilobit flash memory and uh, 32 kilobits SRAM. And this, again, remember, this is a soldering iron, not a, not like a device, a smartphone device product. It's <laughs> So it doesn't need a massively powerful RAM, but just the fact that it has it built in is just awesome. I love it. And I also love the idea that they called it Pine Seal. To me, that's just fun. So anyway, if you want to learn more about the Pine64 and all the stuff that they're doing, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below for their Hacktober update. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern and cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their App Platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. Plus, they built this on their this App Platform on the top of their DigitalOcean Kubernetes structure, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of this week in Linux podcast and a member of the Destination Linux Network community, you can get started for free. Better yet, you can get started for free with a $100 credit by getting, by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, get started by going to do.co slash DLN to get your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is a really interesting topic from the LibreOffice team because they issued an open letter to the Apache OpenOffice team related to what that Apache should do going forward, which is essentially discontinuing the project. So let's get into some details about the timeline of what this is and what this means. So originally, OpenOffice was born as StarOffice in 1985. 
Then, Sun Microsystems bought it in the year 1999 and released its source code the next year as OpenOffice. In January 27, 2010, Sun Microsystems was uh, acquired by Oracle, which then turned into Oracle trying to destroy APIs we talked about last week. Essentially, that's what that came from. Anyway, so just before the acquisition... OpenOffice was forked into LibreOffice. And then within a year, Oracle decided to discontinue the project and then donated it to the Apache Foundation. Apache re- re- renamed it to Apache OpenOffice and then continued to support it. However, the support that Apache OpenOffice received is kind of limited. And by limited, I mean very limited. And in 2015, Red Hat developer Christian Schaller said that OpenOffice was all but dead. In 2016, there was reports saying that OpenOffice is now reduced to just six developers and maintainers and updated only three times in the past two years. LibreOffice was updated 14 times in just 2015 on the, and on the Apache mailing list, uh, Dennis, Dennis, is it Dennis, Dennis Hamilton, a vice president of Apache OpenOffice proposed a retirement plan for OpenOffice. He says, I have regularly observed that Apache OpenOffice project has limited capacity for sustaining the project in an energetic manner. It is also my considered opinion that there is no ready supply of developers who have the capacity, capability, and will to implement to sup, uh, supplement the rough, uh, roughly half dozen volunteers holding the project together. So it's really interesting because we're moving forward in the timeline and we're out at the current time. And OpenOffice is available for a lot of things, and they announced, you know, that it had 300 million times downloads. However, that's not necessarily good, depending on your perspective. So the Document Foundation, the people who make LibreOffice, they issued an open letter requesting that the OpenOffice point users to better alternatives, such as LibreOffice. So instead of going to OpenOffice.org, they would go to, when they typed that in, they would go to something like LibreOffice or something else maybe. So it's it's interesting because I completely agree with this. I've always considered it a bad thing that OpenOffice still existed and it still existed in a very limited capacity. Like there's been very few updates and nothing significant in a long time. So there's actually a quote that's from the, op- the open letter that says, uh, it's since 2014, Apache OpenOffice hasn't had a single major release. That's right. No significant new features or major updates have arrived in over six years. Very few minor releases have been made, and there have been many been issues with timely security updates as well. They also pointed out that LibreOffice in recent years has had uh, 13 major releases and 87 minor releases and had more than 15,000 code commits in 2019 alone compared to 595 for OpenOffice. Many users don't know that LibreOffice exists, and OpenOffice brand is still so strong, even though the software hasn't had a significant release for over six years and is barely being developed and supported. So this is a very good point. They also go on to say that we appeal to Apache OpenOffice to do the right thing. Our goal should be to get powerful, up-to-date, well-maintained productivity tools in the hands of as many people as possible. So let's work together on that. I think this is very very important because OpenOffice still has a very powerful brand. That's very true. It's the most commonly thing for open source version of Office, OpenOffice. It is still commonly, there's even people who know LibreOffice exists and still call it OpenOffice. They still call it that. So it is an issue because that brand has a huge amount of dominance and isn't using it very well. 
and it needs to kind of just acknowledge the fact that the open office has it's has passed its prime. It needs to transition away and just redirect everything to LibreOffice or whatever else. Le- redirect it to someone else if you want to. But it needs to not be, you know, sitting in this purgatory, so to speak, of being known to be used as an alternative. And then people try it and realize that it is not a, a viable alternative because it is so far behind in terms of progress and development versus if they were to find LibreOffice that is doing a ton of work uh, throughout the years to, to make it as, as a viable opt alternative. It creates a problem of people seeing open office, trying it, and then being disappointed. So if you tell them to, if you redirect it from open office to LibreOffice, then you have a much better experience for users because they will still remember the brand open office because it's the open source version of office because they always attach the term office to MS office. So they connect those things much, much easier than Libra because a lot of people don't even know that what that Libra is a term or that it's a term in multiple languages. A lot of people who are even in the realm of knowing what Libra is think that it's a Spanish word for Libre. And technically speaking, it is. But also it's an English word pronounced Libra. And the LibreOffice application is pronounced LibreOffice for the English term. And there's also many other languages that use the word Libra in the exact same spelling, just a different pronunciation. And I think that's interesting in general, but it's hard to convey that message when there's such a dominance of open office and open source already. So it creates this kind of a confusion aspect. And it's better for open office to just redirect to LibreOffice and be done with it because the amount of effort being put into OpenOffice, it's not as good as people want it to be. And it's expected to be, especially in 2020, when they try to use it and then realize that it can't support a lot of the stuff that they need it to support versus if they were to try LibreOffice, which can. So, well, more, much more so anyway. It dep- I don't really know what the support is because I don't use Microsoft Office that much to know what it has to, what it requires and that kind of thing. But it's an, I think it's an interesting thing because it's something that seems kind of odd that they would make an open letter, but I think it's good that they made an open letter because we're talking about on the show and that sort of stuff. And I completely agree that open office should transition to LibreOffice. And even the, the former VP of Apache open office agreed that it should be retired. So at this point, what keeps it around? I, I don't know. And Apache OpenOffice r- responded to this saying that we're caught off, we're caught quite off guard by open letter. There are numerous ways to get in touch uh, to contact the AOO project. And for what we can see, none of those were used instead of somewhat impersonal, semi-confrontational method of an open letter. The, the point of an open letter is to kind of say, let more people in on the conversation. Because if it's a private conversation between a, a project and another project saying, hey, you should go away. I don't think that would end very well, you know? This way, more people are involved in the conversation and more people can understand the conversations about. The better option for the open source community, especially like the Office users who are trying to find an open source Office equivalent replacement to MS Office, please consider doing what the suggestion from the Document Foundation is and redirecting OpenOffice to LibreOffice or something comparable, whatever. I just don't think that the open source community is benefiting 
from a stale, stagnant open office. If you learned more, I want to read, read the open letter. I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Krita, which is 4.4, and this is a maintenance update, but there is a lot of cool stuff in this. So there's been updates and improvements to the fill layers, so that it has multi-threading support, transfer transformations for the pattern fill, ability to rotate patterns, new option for filling the dots, lines, squares, waves, and more. This is called screen tone. So they say that this fill layer allows you to quickly generate the simple pattern you need, you need on the fly, which is very useful for those doing comic book illustrations or similar highly graphics-based graphics styles. Uh, this new fill layer called Multigrid that can generate Penrose tilings and also quasi-crystal structures. I don't know what that is, but it sounds fun, so I need to check that out after the show. Uh, those they, These are rotationally symmetric, but uh, uh, basically they're uh, patterns that don't repeat themselves. And also uh, integrates uh, Disney Animations S-E-X-E-R-P-E. No, oh, wait, no. It's it's basically an expression language, S-E-E-X-P-R. Man, it rolls right off the tongue. C-E-X-P-R? C-E-X-P-R? I don't know. <laughs> this is a, for creating custom fill layers and that sort of stuff. They've also done some improvements to the brushes. So they added a new top stroke and bottom stroke brushes. They've done improvements to uh, support for dynamic use of currently selected colors and gradients and supports the dynamic changing of gradients based on the current uh, foreground and background colors and that sort of stuff. Just basically, it's it seems like it's a small update, but Krita does these things to improve uh, the overall feel of existing, or like the overall usage of existing tools. And I'd love to see that. That's why I wanted to cover Krita on here. And they, they say it's a maintenance update, but maintenance updates are important, especially in projects like this that allow you to do creative work because... The more and more features polish that you get, the better your outcome of the work you create in it. So I'm really happy to see that. And if you've never heard of Krita, it is a fantastic application for painting and drawing in Linux. It also works in other operating systems if you want to, but obviously I care about the Linux part and it allows you to do uh, drawing and design for uh, character art, uh, comic books, whatever you want. It's a very fantastic application for that purpose. And you even have non-destructive editing features inside of Krita, which is fundamentally important for this kind of thing. So if you want to learn more about it, I'll have a link to Krita's uh, latest release of 4.4 in the show notes below. Up next in the show, it's time for some recovery distros. First of all, we're going to talk about Redo Rescue 3.0 has been released. So if you're not familiar, Redo Rescue and also the other one, the recovery tool, is their live CD recovery tools. And Redo Rescue, for example, is based on 64-bit Debian. It has support for a variety of different tools preloaded. It has backup tools, partitioning tools, system recovery, and so on. A few highlights for this release of the 3.0. They've switched to Debian Buster. This is based on Debian 10. They were based on Debian 9 previously so it's not necessarily a switch from uh, architecture it's more of an upgrade from the existing structure uh, this also introduces uefi secure boot support and also support for mounting xfat and f2s F2, f2fs which is fat flash friendly file system and so those those file systems are now supported for mounting it now includes a vnc server for remote help 
and also XFCE Power Manager added used to manage power and brightness control for laptops, power sources, and connected devices. So it also includes OpenBox Window Manager and Tent 2 piles, uh, Tent 2 panels, sorry, have been updated, clean, uh, clearing up some bugs and that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in checking out a recovery tool or recovery distro, you might want to co uh, consider Redo Rescue 3.0 uh, for that option. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes below if you need that kind of thing. Though you may also consider the other option that we're covering today, which is RescueZilla 2.0. This is based on Ubuntu 2004.1, and this is the Focal Fossa version. It's a live distro similar to how Redo Rescue works. So the Re RescueZilla says that RescueZilla is an easy-to-use disk imaging application that's fully compatible with CloneZilla. This, this latest update, which is a 2.0, which is a major update, introduces backups in CloneZilla format, fully compatible with CloneZilla Live distribution. You can use either one to, to restore your backups. Restore backups made in older versions are also available. Uh, new support for backing up and restoring software, RAID de devices, SD cards, support for restoring individual partitions, uh, including new option that doesn't allow for partition tables to be overwritten, which is nice if you, you know, if you don't, you don't need to overwrite them. It's good that you don't have to anymore. Uh, file system aware backup and restore for LVM, which is Linux logical volume manager partitions. Uh, better handling restores the, the disks to smaller or larger than the original. So that's so sometimes when you have a uh, moving a, a rescue of, a, of a, a, an image of your system, there are some cases where if you tried to uh, move it to a drive that it's bigger, it wouldn't work, or a drive that's smaller, it definitely wouldn't work then. But it just allows you to kind of compensate for that sort of stuff, so it makes it easier to re restore the disks based on if it's a smaller or larger than the original, which is very nice. Uh, so that's a lot cleaner to do it. They also improved the front end so that because they ported it to Python three. Uh, so that makes the performance of that much better as well. So that's really cool to see. So if you want to check out more about RescueZilla, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. And let me know if you do decide to, if you do need a recovery distro and you check out both of these options, let me know which one you pick in the comments. I am very interested to see which one works out better for you because I also need one and I haven't decided yet which one I want to check out. So let me know in the comments below. So this episode, we're going to end on a, un a somewhat unfortunate topic. It's actually not as bad as people have made it out to be. So just to clarify that, this is how it usually works in Linux. If there is a vulnerability found and a you know issue found, people like to play it up as being a super awful thing because you know it gets attention because the amount of issues that Linux has is not very frequent versus Windows, which is every day. And people are like, yeah, yet another problem kind of thing. Whereas Linux, when it has an issue, people just lose their minds on it and exaggerate like ridiculous about it. This is a problem, but there's a bit of an asterisk to say that it's not as awful as it might seem, but it is pretty bad. It is pretty bad. So this is a critical kernel Bluetooth vulnerability. It's called Bleeding Tooth. And Google engineer Andy Wynn discovered a remote code execution flaw in the software stack Blue Z for Linux 2.4.6 and above. And he named it Bleeding Tooth. Blue Z by default implements all Bluetooth core protocols and layers for Linux. It's also used in many consumer or industrial Internet of Things devices. He says that Bleeding Tooth is a set of zero-click vulnerabilities in the Linux Bluetooth subsystem that can allow an unauthenticated remote attacker in short distances to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges on vulnerable devices. 
So Wynn promises a blog post about it soon. So uh, hopefully I'll have a link in the show notes, but he does have a, a link demonstrating that it works or how it works and that kind of thing. I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Uh, Intel says that uh, they've provided an issue and an advisory on it. They say potential security vulnerabilities in BlueZ may allow escalation of privilege or information disclosure. BlueZ is releasing Linux kernel fixes to address these potential vulnerabilities. Intel is primary contributor to BlueZ open source project also, that's worth noting. And they say that the only way to patch the vulnerabilities at this moment is to install a series of kernel patches to uh, the advisory links to. So Bleeding Tooth, the flaw is basically a Bluetooth-related uh, pro- uh, proximity uh, vulnerability kind of thing. So Because Bluetooth itself is a proximity thing. So when it says remote code execution, that sounds awful. And it always is because it allows for something that is not a good thing. However, there is an asterisk here because while it is awful, it does require, you know, fairly close proximity to the person that is is attacking to the people that are being attacked. So it's not it's not as bad as it seems, even though it is a critical security vulnerability, which it is. It also requires you to be very close to those people. And thanks to social distancing, you shouldn't be or whatever. See, I found a way to make that a positive. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so it does require also specialized knowledge to be able to do this stuff. It also requires being close to in, uh, in proximity. So it's, it's not going to be a huge problem for a long time or for many people. It's just worth noting that it does exist and people have expressed it being much worse than it is. And I just wanted to clarify that while it is awful, it's, you know, asterisks. We'd like to learn more about this particular uh, topic. I have a link to it in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many others like sponsors. And you can find out all of this by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. And in fact, like I said in the intro, dlnstore.com has been revamped and is fantastic. You should check it out. Even if you're just curious of how I revamped it, go to dlnstore.com to learn more. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. So check those out by going to destinationlinux.network. And also, just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. And if you're a patron, you can join me in the Zoom room for a post-show hangout, basically. So it's a weekly hangout that we do, so be sure to check it out. I'll have links in the show notes for that if you are interested. And also, as a reminder for this this live stream, the show is a global show, which is awesome because it has people watching all around the world, and that is amazing. And I realize that saying Eastern time isn't that helpful for some people if you're not in North America, for example. So I provided a link to a time zone converter in the description and in the show notes to make it easy for those who are not in those time zones to be able to convert it to your time zone much, much more simpler. And also, thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux Good News.
should be a good show, I can tell already. Yep.